All financial advice provided on this show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. The financial ideas and strategies discussed are only provided as a starting point for a conversation about money matters. With regard to your particular investments and financial strategies, consult your financial planner, CPA, or investment professional. All your financial decisions are yours and yours alone to make and subsequently are solely your responsibility. The information that is supplied through the context of the radio program and any repurposing of its content by the host or network is a combination and collection of solid financial investment understanding, opinion, and comments. This network, show, and its host are not liable for financial strategies, outcomes that you employ in any manner that result in any kind of loss. Shares of corporate sponsors may be the subject of buy or sell recommendations in Jay Taylor's newsletter in accordance with Jay's objective opinion. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm John Rubino, sitting in for your usual host, Jay Taylor, who is right about now eating his way across Europe. So if if he fits into the plane when it's time to come home, he'll be back next week. Uh, Jay wants to thank you for listening, and he also wants to thank his sponsors who make the show possible. They are RN Resources, Balmoral Resources, Bonterra Resources, Genesis Metals, Klondike Gold, Northern Empire, and Novo Resources. Today's guests are Jay's technical guru, Michael Oliver, who will tell us about uh, the stock market and how we should be investing for this new era of volatility, Uh, followed by Brian Groves, the chairman of Genesis Metals Corp., a sponsor of the show and a company that Jay thinks has discovered what could be a serious gold deposit in Quebec. Uh, Last, but definitely not least, I'll be speaking to the great Doug Nolan, publisher of the Credit Bubble Bulletin. He'll tell us why the past decades, monetary madness, um, has set the stage for the mother of all credit crises, and maybe he'll tell us when that crisis is due. Um, But first, I've got Michael Oliver with me now. Michael, thanks for coming on. Great to talk to you again. Great to be back. Good. So, um, according to Jay, you've made some bold calls lately. Uh, Want to start with them? Yeah, well, we can focus, uh, I think we have a brief amount of time here, on stocks and gold, uh, stock okay. market and gold. And they've both been, uh, gold, they both have been undergoing what I call the extreme lack of volatility recently. Uh, stocks were very volatile in February, of course, and, uh, but then they, they got into a congestion zone. And I'm looking at the S&P 500 right now, uh, not the... NASDAQ 100, which is packed with about five stocks at the front end that caused it to make a new high. But most indexes, after they collapsed from the January-February collapse, they went into a congestion zone, and they got tighter and tighter, where a lot of redundant price action, you know, good two, three, four up weeks and two, three down weeks and so forth, and you're kissing your sister. It's going sideways. Uh, so it, it's gotten back into its its more or less quiet action. And I think the, the problem with the stock market is, uh, while I think it is topped, I'm talking about the S&P 500 especially, uh, I think that the decline it's going to produce is going to be arduous. It's not going to be a crash, I don't think. I think later on in a bear market it might be. But I think the initial top will be this deceptive type action we've had where they, they take you off the high dramatically, and then they put you in numbness for about three or four or five months where you can't figure out whether it's going up or down. 
and the happiness comes back and you know, sentiment comes back and so forth. Well, gold sort of went through the same thing recently, except in the opposite way. First of all, we turned bullish on gold at $1,140 back in February of 2016 based on annual momentum breakout. Nothing has changed that despite repeated sell-offs over the last couple of years. Uh, right now, the gold's at uh, about 1280 uh, But in January through April of this year, it was pushing up into the mid-1300s. Each month, it would be 1330, 1340, 13. The reason was, if, you'll, if anybody will pop up a gold monthly price chart. Go back to 2013, especially look at the monthly closes, and you'll see there's a line that comes through going all the way back to that five-year period, and it very gradually declines, and any idiot could draw it with a ruler if he just looks at that chart, and that's a price chart breakout level that would echo what annual momentum has already said two years ago, namely up. If you can close a month out above 1340, you break out over this line. Well, so for four months, we spun our wheels quietly just below that level, couldn't get through, couldn't gnaw our way through. Therefore, when you can't get through something that you intend to go through ultimately, sometimes the best solution is to do the opposite. And so I think the gold market with the dollar rally that we've had, which I view as counter-trend, has backed off enough to spook a lot of folks and to create what might be a slingshot effect. Drop down into the 1270s right now, it's 1280. Uh, I think, frankly, if you jump up about 10 or $20 above here, that sell-off is definitely over and you're way back up. And that should be interesting um, because uh, if gold ever goes through that 1340 level on a monthly close, the next phase of this bull market commences. And I think anybody with a price chart at that point would finally say, okay, now I believe it. Uh, we already believe it based on momentum, but uh, that, that price barrier is up there, and I think this recent sell-off was for the purpose of getting that some volatility into gold, clean out some longs, create some doubt, and create a slingshot effect. Um, and uh, thanks to Trump, I think, is a, a good factor in causing some of this recent volatility. It's hit quite a few markets, by the way, not just uh, pulling back gold and causing the dollar to rally or stock market to get rattled a bit here. Uh, but it's also rattled up the copper market, oil market, and so forth. Uh, and some of that volatility could be good in, in getting certain markets going, coming out of congestion. Okay, so where's the next big um, resistance with gold then? Can we get up into the 1500s? I on think this you cycle? can get up to 1700 rapidly. Oh, if that you would can be get great. Up to 1340. Now, that's not the end. I'm, I, I think that gold is in its last bull market of the bull markets that we've seen since the 1970s. And I think this one could be a monster. And, but the first working target, and I don't mean the target ultimately for the move, uh, I, I suggest 1700 area would be the next pause point if you can clear the 1340 price level, which I think is going to happen, but it's just it's taken some time to do it. And uh, it probably has to get this dollar counter trend rally out of the way first. That may be a factor. And I view the dollar rally as a counter-trend rally, that its major trend is down. And it's finally produced, after a year of decline, a decent counter-trend rally. No trend goes from point A to point Z without counter-trend rallies or counter-trend sell-offs. It's just a fact. Uh, and that's how we rank the dollar situation. But that's sort of gotten in the way of gold for a while. But gold's absorbed it very well, actually. In fact, the dollar percent rally dollar index I'm talking about, from its low to the recent high, is actually more than the gold sell-off has been. 
which is highly unusual because the dollar on a volatility basis or percent move basis normally moves a lot less than do commodities that might move inversely to it. So gold has actually taken the dollar rally uh, very well, I think. Okay, so so to kind of summarize here, choppy stock market with a um, with a biased uh, downward, and mm-hmm. uh, a, a, the beginning of a, a new gold bull market here with uh, pretty considerable upside. Yeah, I think so. Okay. I think it's we, we do it in layers, and gold's done it in layers, and I think the stock market will as well. And uh, this is not something that's going to be over in you know a year. I think uh, when you when you punch gold through that level, and when you take stocks down uh, into a, their next level of hell, uh, and and at that point the public will become a little more convinced that it's really topped. Right now they're not convinced; they're debating because the S and P is coiling between its well off its high but well above the recent low, and so it's still a, a sort of a neutral debate field. I think that will change once you take the next layer down, and they'll realize, oh, this thing is, has really topped. But again, the issue is, you know, how long does it go down, where does it go, and in what manner does it decline? And I, I, I'm inclined to think that the stock market, bear market, will be arduous, especially in, let's say, the first year off the high. It won't be, a, you know, 50% of the way toward the, the goal right away. It'll, it'll, it'll be a laborious, layered process. Uh, and, of course, what does that do? It keeps investors in the market. But already I think there's an investor shift in sentiment. You can see it where those who doubt this very old central bank-supported stock market move, I call them the smart money, and, and that, that changes you know, every 10 years or so. Who, who's the smart money? But those who are doubtful of that, uh, what have they done? I think a lot of them have moved into value, and value is in the commodities, particularly commodities that have not yet moved yet. That would exclude oil and copper, but it leaves things like grains, which recently got hit because of the tariffs talk. But they've, they're still in a basing situation that, that looks like very solid. In fact, we're already positive on the grains, despite the recent sell-off. Uh, but there's a lot of commodities out there that are at what you could call theoretical zero. Uh, because commodities don't go to zero, of course, we know that. Some companies can, but commodities don't. So they get as low as they can get relative to the zero. And over time, that changes. Uh, why? Because the devaluation of the money unit that we measure them by. In about every 10 years, the dollar uh, quantity of dollars that are in the world doubles. So okay. its real value declines dramatically. And therefore, what might be theoretical zero for soybeans this year might be two times what it was uh, 10, 15 years ago. Uh, and I think basically grains have gone to theoretical zero and are, are itching for an up move. And I think that's a good place to be. Okay. We've got about a minute left. So let's okay. give something to your um, sophisticated listeners here. What's your favorite long-short combo right now? Um, I still, I think that the holding the gold, you've got to hold a gold-silver core position, and I think silver will outperform gold in the next up move, by the way. Uh, it it uh, has not over the last year or so, but I think it will, will do that. So that's a core position. Other core position would be, uh, and, and right now it doesn't seem to be working, but it, I think it will definitely work out. It, it's worked well for the last year, but over the last two months it hasn't. And that is long emerging markets short the S&P. We're short the developed markets, long emerging. And the reason is the emerging markets went through a bear market from 2011 to 2016. They got cut in half while the S&P was going up. So they're a new bull market in the emerging markets when you measure it via the EEM as an ETF for emerging markets. 
And it it's, was born, as far as we're concerned, in January of 2017. So it's a fresh bull market. Yes, it's having a pullback right now. But on a relative basis, uh, I think it'll beat the S&P by, one, either going down less or two, actually going up while the S&P goes down. And I think the thing that will favor the emerging markets is simply the commodity markets. As they base and turn up, that benefits the emerging markets because emerging markets are largely commodity producers. Okay, perfect. Thank you, Michael. Okay, well, thank talk. you very much. Thank you, yeah. Bye-bye. Okay, time for a commercial break, after which you'll hear an interview that Jay recorded a few days ago with Brian Groves, the chairman of Genesis Metals, which, as I mentioned earlier, um, has what looks like a pretty serious gold deposit in Quebec. A gold rush has begun. Recently, three of the largest gold mining companies announced strategic acquisitions in the Yukon territories. Ahead of them was a group who had already consolidated the key claims covering the historic Klondike gold rush into one company, aptly named Klondike Gold Corp. Led by a team of accomplished geoscientists, the company is steadily advancing exploration to reveal the rich source of all that gold. The hunt for the next major discovery is well underway, and Klondike Gold's shareholders are strategically positioned. Stay ahead of the majors and follow KlondikeGoldCorp.com. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm glad to have Brian Groves, the chairman and CEO of Genesis Metals, back with me today. Genesis Metals trades in Toronto under the symbol GIS. Uh, You can buy it down here in the States under the symbol GGISF, as I have. 72 million shares outstanding, recently trading at around $0.06 in U.S. money, if you can believe that. Market cap, well, in U.S. funds, uh, a little bit under $5 million or thereabouts. Although Genesis has two projects of merit located in the Abitibi Greenstone Belt in Quebec and Ontario, at this time it is focused on the Chevier project in Quebec. It's got a resource, a 43-101 resource of 300,000 ounces of gold in the main zone, averaging about two grams per ton, which is pretty pretty good for an open pit target. Historical non-43-101 compliant resource of somewhere around 500,000 ounces, although as I think Brian will tell you, more work needs to be done before that. That can be uh, talked about and considered uh, as a viable resource. There's a large number of surface, near-surface targets to shoot at, and um, I just think this is a really undervalued stock. It's one that I own personally. I purchased at considerably higher prices than it's currently selling. It is a recommendation in my newsletter as well, uh, and it's a story I think that merits uh, consideration, and I hope that you'll, uh, the folks out there listening to this will pay some attention to it. So uh, I'm really glad that you joined me again, Brian. Thanks. 
Thanks for coming on. And thanks, Jay, for having me again. It's always a pleasure. You know, uh, the last time that you were on with me was April 3rd. Uh, your stock was trading at what I thought then was a ridiculously low $0.08 cents in U.S. money. But like most all junior mining shares since then, it's down even more. And as I just noted now, it is selling around $0.06 cents U.S. funds. The market cap of $5 million. The markets are, are just as much of a reality that you need to deal with as the geological realities. As a geologist, you, you can deal with that. I, I, I suspect that the, the geological realities realities are, are, are easier to deal with sometimes in the market realities. But in any event, how is Genesis coping with this market reality right now? The shares that junior gold shares have gotten hit really hard. They're not Nobody's paying much attention. A lot of good work is being done. Uh, but how are you dealing with this now, you and the board at Genesis Metals? Uh, it's a really good question, Jay. We, uh, like many, many juniors, um, I, I hate saying it, but we're in good company uh, in, in terms of the junior mining space. But we see depressed stock prices and valuations. Access to capital is very limited, and uh, so we have to we have to you know we have to manage those situations. So what we're doing, you know, we 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 still at least are very fortunate to say we have we have cash in our treasury. Uh, we originally, when we spoke in April, we talked about uh, a drilling program, a uh, fairly significant drilling program, again back in the main zone at Chevrolet, uh, with a view that that then would lead to an updated resource uh, estimate for the property uh, in Q3 of this year. As a consequence of market conditions, we've had to we've had to temper our enthusiasm, so to speak, in terms of both timeline and uh, size of program. We uh, we we know that uh, the the availability of capital, even uh, even flow through capital in Canada for Canadian projects, is uh, has become very very restricted, and and hence we have to manage our funds accordingly. So what we're looking at doing is uh, we're looking at a smaller field oriented program for Chevrolet this summer. And uh, to your point, there are multiple targets still on the property away from the main areas of mineralization, principally the main zone. Uh, that that still need to be followed up and this is uh, it's it's not uh, it's really uh, it's all good work that's going towards building up a, a global resource on the property with the you know the the key element being the main zone uh, we uh, we are optimistic, like we all need to be in the junior mining space, that market conditions will uh, be more favorable later in the summer going into the fall, and we anticipate accessing the capital markets at a later date to raise sufficient funds to do a larger drill program. Um, what we're envisaging is approximately 5,000 meters of drilling again into the main zone, and this is designed to build upon the resource model blocks or the geological the mineralized blocks that we've already established within the main zone. Uh, these blocks will serve as the basis for the uh, updated resource estimate. And rather than go through an interim resource estimate now based on our drilling to date, uh, and then another uh, subsequent drill program and then update the resource, we have decided the most cost-effective way of doing it is expand the mineralized areas that we know currently by doing this very, very uh, focused 5,000-meter program and then leading to the updated resource with current market conditions we expect will be now slipping into Q4, um, potentially one to two months delay compared to guidance we gave before. But it's just a, a reflection of market conditions and we have to work within those constraints. 
Right. Um, that's the reality you have to deal with. I think that um, with 300,000 ounces from the main zone, primarily two grams per ton, um, I suppose you, you did some more drilling last year. In fact, uh, I think something like 10,000 meters. Is that right? In 2017? That's that's correct, Jenny. Yes. Yeah. And I saw some, some pretty darn good uh, assays coming out of there. One in January you reported was uh, 21.35 meters, rating 8.73 grams per ton. Another uh, in November, earlier than that, reported uh, 24.33 meters, grading 1.94 grams per ton. Now, those, of course, are headline numbers, but uh, I, I guess, I mean, those are drill results that have not yet been factored into your resource, right? That's correct, yeah. So the only data we collected, uh, we, we drilled approximately, of the 10,000 meters, we completed about 6,000 meters into the main zone. All those new data uh, have still to be included into the resource update. So uh, that that is ongoing in terms of modeling and, and sort of constraining the gold distribution to better reflect how um, how a pit design may may encompass the gold, um, and just you know, if if I may, while we're on that, we we have wrestled with the idea. We we've talked about deeper mineralization potentially uh, under the main zone. Uh, you know, I think uh, our shareholders and potentially the market would be hopefully reward us more so for focusing on near surface ounces um, material that could can. Can conceivably fall within a conceptual pit shell, and hence uh, the 5,000 meters I referred to earlier would be all targeting near-surface ounces. Uh, the um, that, that headline intercept that you mentioned, the uh, eight grams over 20 plus meters, mm-hmm. that's actually within about 30 meters of surface. Wow, a fairly shallow target, uh, and it tends to be at the extreme southern end of what we know as the, or at least close to the, the current known southern limits of the main zone. So we do see areas further south for expansion of the main zone as well. So we uh, we only have uh, very limited drilling uh, further south on the main zone, and we suspect that uh, there's insufficient drilling there to actually confirm um, the, the southern limit of the mineralized envelope. So some of our step-out drilling will be in that area as well as part of that 5,000-meter program. Mm-hmm. 5,000-meter program planned so far for 2018, right? That's correct, yeah. yeah. All right, so, you know, what really got me excited and starting to think about in terms of upside potential, blue sky, if you will, was your discussion of the potential for a Goldex type of uh, mineralization at depth. And for those maybe not uh, familiar with Goldex, it is a, a deep mine in uh, Quebec that's operated by Agne Eagle Eagle. And I think, Brian, the last time we talked, you suggested, or not suggested, but told me that the cutoff grade was a half a gram per ton and for a deep mine, which is, you know, pretty incredible, but it's a bulk mineable situation, and as I understand, it's a pretty profitable project, right? Yeah, it is. It's, it's very much the case, Jay, and uh, I think what makes it work is the ability to get uh, cost-effective bulk mining underground yeah. uh, methods. Uh, that keeps your operating costs down naturally, but because you have large mineralized intervals, albeit at a lower grade than most conventional and deep underground mines, which in the technology could be five to seven grams or more at mm-hmm. depth to, to sustain those operations. Goldex is a little different in that it has, uh, I think it's carrying reserve grades of around about 1.9 or 1.8 grams um, mm-hmm. over significant at depths. And we we have under one modeled block, one part of the main zone, we have indications that the mineralizing 
systems still persist at depth. Uh, one hole returned over a gram, uh, more than a gram over, uh, I think about 40 meters. Uh, and we haven't drilled below that. So the potential for uh, something analogous to gold X to exist at Chevrolet, we think is, 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 is a real possibility. Um, again, you know, given, given market conditions and access to capital, we have to be, I guess we have to be practical and pragmatic. Uh, some of these deeper targets uh, that we would like to test in a deal and uh, and uh, in a different different time, different market, perhaps uh, would um, potentially be seven to eight hundred meter holes. Uh, you know, given given the fairly attractive uh, drilling costs in uh, in Quebec, and you know, that's still a one hundred and sixty to two hundred thousand dollars per hole. So you really don't get many opportunities to uh, get sort of deep intercepts uh, with a limited budget. So the idea would be, as I mentioned, to focus the, the, the presently planned 5,000 meters uh, as near surface drilling to expand potentially open pitable material. Um, and if markets improve uh, significantly, we would very, very seriously consider raising sufficient funds to test those deeper targets because I think uh, uh, it, you're correct. I think like most of the mineralized systems in the Abitibi, they have very, very deep-seated roots, and the, the depth extent uh, of most of these deposits is, is very, very significant, as we see in Timmins, Red Lake, and in the Valdor camp. Yeah, no doubt, and uh, obviously you have to preserve your cash right now, but to me, in my way of thinking as a, uh, as a gold bull, this is something I have in my mind as, a, as an owner of your shares I'm looking forward to. You know, just as an aside, Brian, I, I noticed that the last six months of a year on average since 2000, no, no, actually since 1975, have been positive for gold. The first six months, only three of, of the six months are on average are positive. So I have an idea that we may see a turnaround in the gold markets and in the gold share markets before the end of this year. And maybe you're going to be changing your mind or the board and you will be changing your mind with regard to the potential for some of these deep holes. But, but that aside, whatever the, the result there is, um, I think you... You know, with 5,000 meters of drilling, you've got a lot behind you now that you drilled last year, some very attractive intercepts. Uh, you're going to be coming up with a near-surface open pitable resource, and I have to say, you know, two grams per ton. I don't know what your sort of stripping ratios might be on that, but at two grams per ton in your main zone, that's a pretty darn good start for an open pit project, I'd say. Yeah, I would agree, Jay. And I, I think, well, you know, looking at some of the uh, some of the operating parameters that uh, Goldex uses, um, actually the old Goldex mine before Agnico became involved was uh, a ramp development. It wasn't uh, it wasn't a shaft uh, sort of to access the mineralization. So it was a ramp, um, a spiral ramp down into the mineralization. So. We, you know, we're looking at uh, we're looking at that op- opportunity as well. Mm-hmm. We could have the near surface potential material that sits in a pit, and then the deeper extensions could very, very well be amenable to uh, to bulk underground mining by ramp accessing below the pit floor. So, um, while conventional pit designs really only take in maybe 150 meters at at, at a maximum depth uh, from surface. Um, we see that, you know, the, the, the depth potential below what, uh, you know, in terms of the deeper intercepts that we've seen in the database sort of indicate to us that there is a, there is a, a twin, uh, development scenario that could, could come into play as we go through the resource modeling process. 
Um, for most of your listeners now, the resource modeling process really has to, has to comply with certain guidelines in terms of um, economic viability. So real world operating costs, mining costs have to be applied even at this very early stage of, of a resource, uh, of a resource estimate. Um, it's not an, you know, it's not a detailed engineering study, but we have to look at various uh, operating mines uh, within the Abitibi and elsewhere and what their operating costs are. So we're very fortunate that we do have Goldex as a, as a model that could uh, potentially help us in terms of designing uh, deeper underground access to mineralization within that conceptual mine plan that uh, that forms part of the you know part of the resource estimate. Mm-hmm. I mean that to me is blue sky. That could be something that makes exactly. uh, yeah. Genesis into something much bigger uh, than anything anybody's really looking at, except for a few people that are close to the project now. But <clears throat> I know the last time we spoke, you mentioned you know because I posed the question to you, what uh, how many ounces do you think you need in order to get some major really interested in you and you you know you talked about I am gold not far away on a project uh, that is a, a high grade but underground project uh, and that's under a half a million ounces well you're very close to that I mean uh, right now but in terms of um, you know what the potential is there for a big company to come in and be attracted to you, uh, you, you are planning some more uh, in your 5,000 meter program this year. Is that mostly in the main zone, or is there some other areas around there? Because you have a lot of near surface targets to shoot at. So the 5,000 meters that you're going to drill this year is that mostly is that mostly targeted around the main zone to increase the ounces there, or are there some drilling? at other targets nearby the main zone? Uh, it's mainly focused on the main zone itself, Jay, and that, again, to, to enhance the number of ounces that we potentially could see in the resource estimate. Um, when I talked about the, uh, the sort of the surface program uh, this year, we would uh, be aiming at, you know, just basic prospecting, but also the cost cost effectiveness of trenching in terms of exposing potentially shallow targets that are mineralized, you know, cannot be overlooked as well. So, sure. Uh, trenching, trenching is a very, very powerful tool. And yes, it, it, it's not as it doesn't give you the depth information of a drill hole, but it certainly exposes a significant amount of outcrop or, you know, buried subcrop or buried outcrop uh, that could then, you know, form the, uh, form the basis of new targets that we need to follow up. So we see it as a very effective uh, technique. So the, the drill yeah, again, just to reiterate, the drilling will be focused on the on the main zone, um, but the uh, the surface work we're planning for the summer will be very much uh, targeting new target areas, uh, and again, markets con- market conditions <laughs> permitting uh, later in the year, uh, we may be able to raise additional funds beyond the five thousand meters, you know, beyond the funds needed for the five thousand meters in the main zone to evaluate some of these other target areas as well. Yeah, it's um, you. You definitely have a lot going for you. Um, the market doesn't seem to appreciate it. I do, and I own the shares. I I, um, I appreciate your hard work, and you know, it's, this is the nature of the industry. Though we go through these periods of time when nobody cares, the work it takes a lot of work, a lot of science, a lot of capital, and then one day when the when the ship comes in, uh, people make a lot of money in this sector. It's it's not an easy sector, but it really is one that can be very profitable at the right time. Um, yeah, the Monster Lake project, which is the one I was talking about, I am Gold, is not that far away. 
So, you know, who knows? There, I mean, I think you were suggesting some potential synergies, not that you had any discussions with IM Gold or anyone else, but just theoretically looking at things. Uh, if you have, a, a, you know, a million, a half a million, a million ounces of high-grade, open-pitable uh, gold resource, that could be very valuable to a company like IM, potentially, or to yourselves, or, you know, who knows which way this will go. But in any event, um, anything else you'd like to talk about with regard to your Chevier project? No, I think I think we've covered most of the high points, Jay. It's, uh, it's again, it's one of those one of those times where we have to be diligent and patient in terms of the, the funding that we have, and, and uh, it is shareholders' money after all, and we have to be, you know, respectful of that. So it's, and some of these decisions in terms of focus and strategy that we've discussed today, you know, we haven't arrived at that lightly. It's been a, a lot of hand-wringing at the board level and management level to try and establish the best approach with the funding we have and, and especially more so with the, the drilling program that we've talked about. Um, I, I think, I think you know, shareholders and potential investors would uh, view favorably on the fact that we are committing the money to shallow drilling, you know, with a, with a view that we could expand upon um, the potentially mineable or open pitable uh, resources that would uh, hopefully be delivered um, within the resource report. Uh, the only the only frustration, of course, is that uh, uh, like you, I, I'd love to be able to drill some of those deeper holes to test the gold core, uh, the gold gold X model. But at this stage, um, we'll have to reserve that and, and focus on the near term objectives. Just one more quick question that comes to mind with regard to your drilling this year in the main zone. I think you indicated that really high grade that we mentioned earlier earlier came from the southern end of the main zone. Is that right? And if so, is that where you'll be focusing a lot of your attention this year? Well, we have some, some drill holes planned in that area to see if we can extend uh, the uh, mineralized block to the south. At the present time, um, as I said, there's only limited drilling for the south, uh, you know, we'll be on the, the currently uh, defined southern limit. So we see that uh, we, we have noticed, you know, some of the older drilling that we've been basing our modeling on, uh, it was at a time when surveying, downhole surveying, and even positional accuracy of the whole location sometimes can be questionable. So um, our geologists have noticed sort of breaks in the geological continuity, sort of suggesting that perhaps there is uh, something as simple as, uh, as survey breaks in the southern end of the property that uh, we will only establish by drilling new holes. If we are fortunate, then we will have extensions, potential extensions of the mineralization further to the south, which which would be great, and I think it would build upon uh, the resource estimate that uh, we're targeting for late this year. All right, Brian. Well, thank you very much. All I can say is that a, a five and a half or six cent stock in U.S. five million dollar market cap, three hundred thousand ounces, and a lot more than that, most likely. And we'll be learning more Q4, I guess, about an updated resource at a time of the year when the gold share markets are around the the low, people might want to really pay some attention. I hope my listeners are paying attention to the details of our discussion because I think uh, this Genesis Metals is certainly one I own and one I have high hopes for. Thank you, Brian, for being with us, and uh, we'll look to update our listeners again sometime in the near future. Thank you so much. Thanks very much, Jay, for having me. All right, folks, well, don't go away because uh, coming up next, John Rubino, who is substituting for me as host today, will be speaking with Doug Nolan about the dire straits the U.S. and the global economy has gotten itself into thanks to massive indebtedness. Also, they will address what you might consider doing to avoid the pain that most unsuspecting investors will inevitably suffer. So don't go away. Stick around for John Rubino and Doug Nolan.
Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Noble Resources Corp. trades on the OTCQX under the symbol NSRPF and on the TSX Venture Exchange under NVO. Its flagship assets are located in the Karatha region of Western Australia, where they are currently drilling and trenching their Purdy's reward project. In addition, Nobo has partnered with Sumitomo Mining Corporation to advance its Beaton's Creek Gold Project toward production. With over $70 million in cash and strong shareholder support from the likes of Kirkland Lake Gold, Nobo is well on its way to establishing itself as one of the top junior explorers and developers in Australia. Have you become a member yet? Sign up now to become a member of Voice America. It's always free and easy. Plus, you get to take advantage of some great member benefits. Get unlimited access to millions of hours of on-demand content across all of our channels. Keep track of your favorite episodes, shows, and hosts in your own customizable library. Find out what shows you might be interested in based on your favorites. Plus, you get insider access with our newsletter. Membership gives you more. Sign up at voiceamerica.com and click register at the top right. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm John Rubino, sitting in for Jay Taylor, who's on vacation this week with his lovely wife, Teresa. He'll be back next week. Uh, with me is Doug Nolan, who's been a money manager, mostly on the short side of the market, for um, going on three decades. Most recently with McIlvaney Wealth Management's Tactical Short Strategy Service. Uh, I've been following Doug's published work for going on 20 years now, and consider him to be the sharpest observer of our ongoing financial madness. So welcome, Doug. Good to talk to you. Hi, John. It's great to be on, and I'm, I'm, it's a treat for me to be on with you because I've admired your work for a long time, uh, your writing, your, your website, and also this gives me an opportunity to thank you for highlighting my work over the years. Uh, greatly appreciate it. Thank you. Fantastic. Yeah. Um, one of the things that uh, that occurred to me as I was writing up the intro here, Doug, is that, it, you know, we've been doing this for a really long time. I've been following your work for decades, and you've been analyzing uh, what is basically an, a completely unsustainable, unprecedented credit bubble that has been going on for a really, really long time. So the, the question that arises from that is how the heck did they keep this thing going for as long as they have? It doesn't seem possible just based on the numbers, and yet here we are. Yeah, it's been incredible. Uh, you know, I really dove into the macro analysis going all the way back to you know the uh, Japanese bubble experience in the late 80s. Um, by the late 90s, I was convinced that we had completely fundamentally changed finance, right? It was out with the old banking system, in with securitizations, uh, Wall Street finance, hedge funds, repos, uh, asset-backed securities, uh, 
mortgage backs, the GSEs, right? We had fundamentally changed finance. And I was convinced once the Fed figured this out and they saw how unstable this unfettered finance was, that they would kind of rein it in. And, you know, we saw various bubbles blow up. We saw the bond market blow up in, in 1994. We saw the Mexican collapse, Southeast Asia in 96, 97. And then the wheels almost came off in 1998 with, you know, the collapse of Russia and long-term capital management. But each time, instead of the Fed recognizing how unstable this was, it was like they, they created these bailouts and flooded the system with liquidity and backstopped the markets and the bubble just got bigger and bigger and, uh, you know, I started my blog and before they were called blogs in 1999, thinking the bubble would burst uh, imminently, and it did burst in 2000. Um, but then in 2002, I had to change my tune, and I, I started worrying about the uh, mortgage finance bubble because the Fed was specifically targeting mortgage finance to reflate the system after the bursting of the tech bubble. So then I chronicled that the whole time, and the excesses were unbelievable to me. They kept rates so low as long as they did and, and didn't uh, try to rein in the mortgage excesses at all. And then when that bubble burst in 2008, again, I thought, that's it, the bubble burst. Well, again, in 2009, I think it was April of 2009, I had to change my tune again. And I started warning about the unfolding global government finance bubble because it was clear that central banks were going to use central bank credit, sovereign debt, they were going to throw the kitchen sink at this thing, do things that we never even imagined possible to reflate the system again. But I had no idea back in 2008, 2009, that we would literally have, what is it, we're up to $15, $16 trillion of money created out of nothing by the central banks and interest rates are still near zero in most of the places, uh, most of the countries around the world. And, you know, and, and now markets everywhere just believe that we don't have to worry about bear markets. We don't have to worry about recessions because central banks are right there to, to make sure they don't happen. So from my analytical framework, this has gotten so beyond what anyone thought was possible. And not to ramble on this, but I know when uh, Governor Bernanke came on to the Fed back in 2002, I'm thinking, this, this guy is this guy's crazy. The government printing press and helicopter money, this guy's crazy. And who knew that he would end up being the Fed chairman and the whole world would adopt such radical monetary policy. But that's kind of what's got us to where we are today. Well, you know, one of the questions I get from, from people who are justifiably tired of hearing all these gloom and doom predictions that just don't seem to, to pan out is maybe, um, maybe the world is so different that they have figured out how to just keep this going forever. In other words, does it have to end if it hasn't ended yet, what is it that will eventually end this thing? Sure. And, you know, bubbles do win. They're, you know, in my definition, they're a self-reinforcing but inevitably unsustainable inflation. Uh, we've seen this massive inflation going on for 30 years. What makes this bubble period that's going on a decade now so dangerous is because not only has it gone global, and it's gone across asset classes, right? Security markets, real estate, private business. You can go right down the list. It's everywhere. It's also, it's gotten to the very heart, the very foundation of global finance. It's gotten to central bank credit and sovereign debt. So that is money. And, and the danger of money is it, it 
it's special and it has insatiable demand, so governments can print as much as they want. We have, you know, <laughs> centuries of history of this kind of thing, of inflationism. The problem is, at the end of the day, these are just electronic ju- journal entries. There's no real wealth behind trillions and trillions of perceived wealth. Uh, one of these days, uh, there's going to be a crisis of confidence in central bank credit, in debt. Uh, so I don't think you can continue to inflate all of this phony money uh, forever until someone will say, well, wait a minute, I, I think I've got enough of this. Uh, maybe I'll sell, sell this and buy something uh, that I think will sustain value over time. So I, this can't go on forever. This is, uh, you know, we've never had anything like this in history, but it's a similar dynamic in that it's, it's, credit, it's credit growth. Uh, and the manipulation of, of, of credit, manipulation of values, and at the end of the day, that, that's not going to work. Okay, so, so are you saying that um, currency valuations are the, the thing that eventually brings the system down? In other words, people lose faith in the dollar and the euro and the yen, and when that happens, central banks no longer have the tools that they need to keep this thing going? Am I paraphrasing yeah, correctly? Yeah. Okay. That's, that's true. And, and John, what I would add is let's get this real time. I, I think the market is starting to question, do, do I want to be exposed to uh, central bank credit, credit in Turkey? Do I want to be exposed to central bank credit sovereign debt in Brazil? Um, Argentina, we've already seen the mess in Venezuela. So we're already seeing the market decide, I, I think I'm, I'm okay without playing, playing that credit inflation. I, I don't want to do that. In, in the short term, when you have these beginning of, of, of lack of confidence at the periphery, and, and we saw this back with subprime uh, in 2007, a lot of times that can lead to a flow of finance to the core, which we're seeing in U.S. financial assets. And basically what that does is it just exacerbates the bubble at the core, the excesses at the core, and, and you know, only, only makes the whole system uh, more vulnerable to a collapse. But I don't think it's a stretch at all to, to, to think people would uh, question uh, you know, the sustainability of wealth and, and credit in the emerging markets today. We're, we're seeing Yeah, the emerging markets were, um, they were the darlings of Wall Street for a couple of years there, right? That's where everybody was putting their money, including retirees, on the advice of their financial planners. And now you're seeing these things blow up one after another. Is is there an end to the process in, for instance, Latin America? Uh, can, can anything on that continent um, survive if Brazil blows up, for instance, and Argentina and Venezuela all at the same time? Yeah, and I, I think I've been doing this too long because, uh, you know, I remember, you know, the devastating emerging market collapses even, you know, during the the 80s, uh, and then the Mexican collapse in 95 in Southeast Asia, which was devastating. Um, the emerging markets function very well as long as credit is loose and international funds are flowing readily into the markets, into their economy. Uh, they become a disaster if the hot money seeks an exit and a quick exit. Uh, again, we've seen this repeatedly over the years. We've never seen the amount of finance go into these economies as we've seen the past decade. We've, ne- we've never experienced this with an ETF complex where, where a lot of you know, savers have put money into emerging markets, as you say, they've, you know, they've been recommended by many, many folks. 
and and everyone thinks that they they have a liquid vehicle that if they want to get out they just get out. Well, I'm sorry, the emerging <laughs> markets can turn very illiquid when the hot money tries to get out. So I I just can't believe we don't learn from previous experiences, and and uh, I'm very concerned by what has started to unfold. You mentioned Latin America, yeah, it's, it, but it's also you know it's Asia, it's, it's Eastern Europe. Uh, yeah, it's very concerning. Very concerning. Okay. Now, now one of the reasons that we've had the recovery, recovery that we've had from a, a crisis that we probably shouldn't have been able to recover from is that all the world's central banks are, have been coordinated. Everybody's been easing at the same time until this year. And, and now they're starting to diverge, right? The Fed is starting to tighten a bit. The ECB is talking about tightening. And the Bank of Japan is still really easy. So is that divergence a big deal from your point of view? Yes, I think it is. And we've seen these, you know, this extraordinary concerted reflationary effort by the world's central banks, you know, for a decade. And so long as they were all inflating together, and that's inflating security markets, inflating asset markets, credit was inflating, the economies were all inflating, there was this appearance of stability. Uh, but history, you know, it, it teaches us repeatedly that inflationism it's always such a slippery slope. And once you go down that path, it's extremely difficult to get off of it. Um, inflationary consequences over time evolve, and they always become increasingly problematic. They, they catch up to you. Uh, so now we see these divergences, and this illusion of stability is, is beginning to fade. Um, the Fed's had, you know, they've had loose policy on now for a decade now. It's been far too long. And major imbalances have developed. You've had here in the U.S. bubbles in the stock market and corporate credit, these massive unending fiscal deficits that now only get worse, Uh, the reemergence of real estate bubbles, and economic maladjustment that people won't appreciate until the bubble burst. But uh, the Fed fell behind the curve, and now they're hoping to normalize policy without sparking a crisis. But... Um, you know, this, the prospect for higher U.S. rates is hitting the emerging markets hard. And again, it's been a historic bubble in the emerging markets. It's beginning to falter. And this collapsing EM bubble, it, it dims global growth prospects, right? The emerging markets have been key to growth for a decade now. And it also puts downward pressure on U.S. yields, which is essentially overriding the Fed's efforts to tighten financial conditions. So what I see in my parlance, you know, the the Fed rate hikes are causing acute stress at the periphery, and this uh, stream works to exacerbate speculative flows and lower yields here at the core in the U.S., uh, you know, stimulating what I refer to as the terminal phase of excess that we see at the the end part of the cycle. So the whole global system has become conspicuously dysfunctional, and I think this divergence ensures... uh, you know, extreme global financial economic instability for years to come. I hope I'm wrong on this, but that's the way I see it. For people who are trying to time this, is there an indicator that we can use to give us a sense of, you know, where we are in this process of of years of financial instability? For instance, you you mentioned interest rates, um, where at the long end, rates are kind of coming down lately in the U.S. and they're going up in the short end, which means that uh, we're, we're seeing the yield curve collapse and possibly 
invert in the not too distant future. So is that something that is a short term signal when it happens that that we've got immediate trouble in front of us? Right. And I'm reminded of of a saying I've said over the years uh, that, you know, bubbles go to unimaginable extremes and then double. So I don't (laughs) recommend anyone try it. You know, I'm doing the best I can here, but these things tend to go on a, a lot longer the greater excess than we would expect, but I'll also say when they start to unravel, they can catch everybody flat-footed because they can unravel quickly. I personally believe the global bubble has been pierced. We're seeing it in emerging markets. I actually think what we saw in February also with the unwind of these short ball, all these derivative products, which were you know essentially variations of riding flood insurance during a drought. I think that was the, the initial signal similar to subprime in, in June of 2007 with the collapse of a couple of Bear Stearns uh, structured credit funds. But I also warned, you know, back in 2007, it took 15 months from the initial subprime eruption to the crisis. So this could drag on for a bit, but I think what is unfolding in emerging markets has attained momentum that will be difficult to reverse. And uh, so I, I think it's time to pay close attention to, to what's unfolding in markets and don't be complacent just because U.S. markets are, you know, have, have traded close to record highs. Uh, you know, we saw similar market dynamics in, in late 2007. Okay. Which was, a, in retrospect, a pretty good time to start shorting, right? And, uh, and you just got back into short selling with your uh, relationship with McIlvaney Financial. So good timing. <laughs> I think you're going to have fun for the next few years. Um, well, you know, we'll work hard and, and do our best. It's, it's, uh, it's always a challenge. And yeah. you had mentioned the yield curve. So I, I also want to mention that was a, a very important signal in 2007, right? Even though mm-hmm. stocks went to all-time highs, oil, you know, crude went to what was $140, $145 a barrel. That yield curve was telling you trouble was coming. And I always pay more attention to, to – uh, you know, the, the fixed income market for market indicators than I, than I do equities. And certainly, you know, the, the yield curve is indicating trouble ahead, I think. Okay. So at what point does the yield curve become an imminent signal? In other words, does it have to uh, invert? Short rates have to go above long rates? Or can we just get towards zero and then start? Because, you know, I'm trying to figure out what to short, Doug. I know, I know it's dangerous. But <laughs> I, I, want, I want to replicate the big short. I watched that movie and decided that this time around, I want to be one of those guys. Um, so the, the timing is very important. And a good signal that tells us when in the next six months we should be shorting stuff would be really nice. So it, can you say anything about that with, uh, with regard to the yield curve? Sure. And you're, you're a sophisticated investor, John, but for, for the average guy out there, and again, I'll show my age here, when it comes to shorting stocks, I, I just thought back to you know, Nancy Reagan saying, just say no. But uh, anyways, it's <laughs> tough to, to short. Um, what this is, the, the analysis right now is, extremely challenging. Um, back in, you know, in mortgage finance bubble period, it was a, you know, U.S.-centric bubble. It was mortgage finance. So my indicators are pretty clear. You know, subprime was, was the periphery. Once subprime, uh, you know, cracked and you had a lack of liquidity at the fringe of mortgage finance, I, I was convinced that was the beginning and the end. This is a global bubble. Um, I can't look to U.S. credit spreads as good indicators 
like I could back in 07. So okay. I look more to global indicators, which are flashing, you know, time to pay attention, but also the, how this navigates from the periphery of EM to the core of U.S. credit. That's something we're just going to have to follow daily, weekly, monthly. Uh, and again, it, it can take a while and, and then all of a sudden it, it can speed up. But I'm not seeing, you know, I don't see the stress. We've seen some widening of, of credit spreads, especially in investment grade credit. But junk's holding together pretty well, and there's no indications of liquidity shortfall in, in U.S. credit at this point. Okay. All right, Doug. Well, that's a perfect place to end it. Uh, we've got about 30 seconds left, so uh, I'll um, say goodbye and, and uh, you know, do the last little bit, and that'll be it. So thanks. It was great talking to you. Hey, great talking with you, John. Thanks so much for having me on today. Real, thanks, real sweet for me to talk with you. Take care. Great. Okay. So... That's it for today. Next week, Jay's scheduled guests are Jeff Deist, um, former chief of staff to Congressman Ron Paul, and newsletter writer Louis James, who will talk about some of the same companies that Jay follows. Michael Oliver will not be available next week, but uh, Jay's hopeful that he'll be available the following week. Uh, thanks for listening. It's been a fun um, hour hosting the show, and uh, good luck out there. Thank you again for listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor. Please join us again next Tuesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Bonterra Resources, an advanced exploration company, is aggressively expanding its high-grade gladiator gold deposit in Quebec, Canada. Over the last 12 months, Bonterra has raised over $60 million and has attracted strategic investors Eric Sprott, Kirkland Lake Gold, and New York-based Vanek Gold Fund. Bonterra is focused on updating its 43-101 resource in the second half of 2018 and will incorporate up to an additional 100,000 meters of drilling, where the dimensions of the Gladiator deposit have been expanded to date nearly 500%. Bonterra trades in Canada under the symbol BTR and in the U.S. under the symbol B-O-N-X-F. Orin Resources is a technically driven, capital-efficient exploration company focused on delivering shareholder value through accretive project acquisition and discovery. The company's management team has a record of success in the discovery, advancement, and monetization of exploration assets. Oren's focus is on advancing its seven premier gold exploration projects located in Canada and Peru. Oren's shares trade on the TSX in Canada and the NYSE American in the U.S. under the stock symbol AUG. For more information, please visit orenresources.com.